This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. From MPB Think Radio, this is Creature Comforts, the show all about your animals and the animals around you. I'm Kevin Farrell, here with Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson, and Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. Today on the show, we'll welcome back biologist Joe McGee. It may seem like midsummer to us humans, but there are already signs in the natural world that we're entering late summer. So Joe, Libby, and Dr. Major will help us identify these changes by the different birds, frogs, and other animals found around the state this time of year, and we'll talk about changes in their behavior. And as always, Dr. Major is here ready to answer your pet questions. You can join our conversation with your phone call. The number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Or email the show. Send it to animals at mpbonline.org. Always like to remind you that if you miss Creature Comforts on Thursday morning, it repeats every Saturday morning at 6. So good morning. Hope uh, that everyone is doing well this morning. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, Libby, uh, what's uh, what's active and around uh, your area this morning? Oh, uh, all kinds of things going on. I'm hearing cicadas and Katie did crickets. Um, not so many frogs, so I think that Joe may tell us why not. But uh, I've, I've seen lately uh, a nest of t- baby tufted titmice that fledged, and that made me start watching my titmice a little more and uh, doing a little reading about them. And that's a bird that all of our listeners could probably get to know. It's a year-round resident in central, well, all over Mississippi, all over the southeast. It's a year-round resident. So we see them coming to our feeder year-round. They um, catch a lot of insects, but they also frequent your feeders. And sometimes they even stash their seeds some places. They like uh, big sunflower seeds, even though they're pretty big for them. They're friendly to people. They're the bird that you hear tales about. Often they'll come on a porch. If you've got a sleeping old dog, they like to pull hairs out to use in their nest. And <laughs> I've, I've seen some really funny pictures that people have gotten of of those events. I've, I've heard accounts of them even uh, pulling hairs out of a person's hair. But I, haven't, I, haven't, I don't have any eyewitness reports on that. But uh, anyway, it was fun to watch the parents. Both the parents help the babies and um, feed them and coax them out of the nest and then uh, continue to to feed them while they're all at the feeders. The, the first time they went to the feeder, the babies continued to beg the parents. And so the parents would feed them a little bit. It's a real noisy event, like the, kid, the the babies were excited and making lots of noise and parents feeding them. But I could tell as the day went on yesterday, the parents fed them less and less. And I think tried to get the, the little birds to start feeding themselves, which they did some. And from what I read, they'll help take care of them for a few days and um, watch over them. I think this is a second nest for these birds. They like to cavity nest, so... Uh, they're great for bird houses. At, at my house, they usually go in. Paul built several bird houses, and his father built some too, to the plans of bluebird boxes. But we put them in places where you wouldn't attract bluebirds to see what we got. And we got lots of chickadees and tufted tip mice and uh, the prothonotary warblers that we talked about last week. So anyway, tufted titmouse would be a good bird for um, our listeners to get to know. And the song is easy to learn. It's just 
they say, Peter, 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 or Pito, 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 and very loud. They can be a loud little bird. All right. Wow, Libby, that was great. Appreciate that, uh, the little primer on the, the tufted titmice. Uh, we've been reminding folks the last couple of weeks that the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science is now reopened. Uh, it opened recently, but with new safety guidelines are in place. You must wear a mask, and there are timed arrival reservations are requested to visit the museum. So if you need some more information, you can call them at 601-576-6000 or visit mdwfp.com slash museum. Dr. Major, good to have you back on the show. Um, what about this severe heat and humidity we've been having? I know it's been affecting us humans, but what about our pets? Have you seen any kind of uptick in the clinic of of uh, pets with uh, heat-related issues? Not a whole lot. Uh, people are very aware, I think, that, uh, hey, this is pretty severe, this high humidity and high heat. We've had, what, heat index of, what, 105, 110. So uh, I would say that in most cases, people have been very, very aware. And, of course, it goes without saying not to leave your dog, you know, in the car under any circumstances with the, with the motor, you know, air conditioner running because something could happen while you're out of the car and it could go off. And it only takes minutes uh, for the heat to really just get uh, deadly. So those are important. Make sure your dogs and cats have plenty of water available. And I think uh, and Libby would agree from the standpoint of birds, too, with even though we've had rain, uh, there are very few pools or anything available right now for birds and other small animals, and it's good to have some extra water out for them as well. Uh, you know, I, I think uh, you previously mentioned, and I've always thought it was a good idea, you know, with your uh, dogs, especially are outside, make sure they have some shade to get into. But if you have an old box fan, uh, it might be a good idea maybe to stick it back out on the porch uh, to give them a little bit of a breeze to help uh, stay cool as well. Absolutely. Movement of air is important. And, you know, shade is, is very important. Uh, and that's that's a big part. And, of course, we see a, a mushrooming, if you will, of flea population right now as well with the heat and uh, that sort of thing. So be very aware of parasites. And it goes without saying to certainly keep your dogs uh, on harbor and preventive year-round. Uh, we do have a couple of emails to get to. And speaking of fleas, last week <clears throat> we had a caller who called in and said that uh, she had a feral cat uh, that she was concerned about fleas, but she really couldn't get close enough to put any sort of a topical um, uh, medicine on her. And we have a response that has a suggestion uh, that says, please let the lady with the feral cat know that Lufenaron uh, works great and can be purchased in tablets to be put in food if you just Google it. So it's L-U-F-E-N-U-R-O-N. Dr. Major, are you familiar with that? Yes, Lufenuron, uh, there's all kind of different pronunciations, I'm sure. Uh, and that might work. A lot of the feral cats, won't, you know, if they're hungry, they'll, they'll eat it crushed up in their food. And certainly that might, that might work, okay? Okay. And that's um, a good, good recommendation. Got another feral cat question here, and it says, My father-in-law has two older feral cats that often have eye drainage. We can pet them and briefly hold them. What uh, might we be able to do to help them? Good question, of course, and the idea here is why do they have this discharge? It sounds like both of them do, which would go along with some sort of infection, probably bacterial, but it could be rooted in a viral-type uh, infection. 
uh, such as uh, rhinotracheitis or uh, other uh, type uh, contagious viral diseases. A lot of the feral cats do have upper respiratory uh, infections as well as infections of the eyes. You have to be very careful with the feral cats. Certainly you could uh, talk to your vet and get some drops to put in the the eyes that might help. And certainly it would help if you could clean the eye using a damp cotton ball to remove to remove mucus. Uh, some of these can get quite quite severe, so that would be my recommendation if you can. But you need to discuss with your veterinarian what uh, medication to get to put in their eyes. And I think maybe a suggestion if they're allowed to sort of briefly hold them, maybe get a towel ready and do that whole thing where you wrap your cat up like a mummy so all of its uh, paws are sort of uh, um, limited movement around and so that you could possibly uh, do something without, you know, getting scratched or without them kind of squirming away because I know that can be difficult. If you like a burrito or something <laughs> like that, the real problem is a lot of these cats won't tolerate even that, getting a towel and wrapping them up. The main things I would say for the uh, owner, which I consider, even though they're feral cats, that you've been feeding the cats for a long time, and they, they're your cats, uh, so you need to take care of them. And uh, don't get bitten or scratched, though, because they can be quite harmful uh, when they when they bite or scratch. And usually always a cat bite will become infected, so just be careful. All right, let's get one more cat email in before our first break. Uh, It says, yesterday we noticed our cat has been much quieter than normal. His meow is quieter, and he seems to be in discomfort. I've heard about cat flu. Is there anything I can do at home to help until he's able uh, to visit his vet? Of course, you know, uh, when you say cat flu, I'm not sure exactly what they're, they're talking about. And, of course, this cat sounds like an inside cat. I hope he is. And probably has not been exposed to other cats. Uh, make sure that the cat is drinking, eating, and uh, I would suggest that, you know, that, you know, urinating is, is a thing. If it's a male cat, a lot of times they will have a blockage or a partial blockage, which certainly could be discom- uncomfortable. And I think cats, like people, uh, will go through some depression sometime. Uh, I know... Uh, I had one of my cats pass away uh, a week or so ago, and one of the cats is still very depressed because they were big buddies, and uh, they can show some of the same exact uh, grieving and depression uh, that people can show. All right. Uh, time for our first break of the hour. When we return, we'll bring our friend of the show, biologist Joe McGee, into our conversation. Birds are moving and relocating around the state from waiting birds like herons and egrets to the departing purple martins. We'll talk about this movement when we return, so stay tuned. You can call with your questions and comments. It's one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one eight seven seven. 672-7464. In fact, Joe's on the line from Osaka. We'll get to that call. You can also email the show. It's animals at mpbonline.org. Stay tuned. Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB public media app. 
You're listening to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, Libby Hartfield, and today we're joined by our friend of the show, Joe McGee. If you want to join the conversation with a question or a comment, the number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672 7464. You can email the show. Just send it to animals at mpbonline.org. As promised, we'll get to our phone call, and it is uh, John who has called in from Osaka this morning. Go ahead, John. You're on the air with us. Hey, hello. And hello. that's Osaka. <laughs> uh, yes, uh, I have a question about what I think is an invasive species. It is a black grasshopper two to three inches long, and it, w- it has either orange, yellow, or red markings, which I understand uh, is a marking to either say that they are poisonous or they're imitating it. Libby, any thoughts? Um, I know what it is. Joe. Things. Okay, Joe, tell John. us. Jump in there. It's it's um, it's not an invasive species. It's a native species, but they do uh, form you know, fairly large numbers this time of year. It's a lubber grasshopper. Uh, as a matter of fact, I I have photographed that species, and I'm trying to bring it up now to give you the scientific name, and you could uh, because uh, uh, it will take a tomato look it up plant again. out in five minutes. It, it's uh you spell it L U B E R lubber grasshopper, and lubber uh, it's, grasshopper. It, you say it's large and bl- black, mostly black with some yellow and red markings, or orange, yes, or, or yeah orange, yep. and the wings are all, are really really small. Uh, I don't know about you the wings. Just, you, you didn't remember the wings? Did you see it crossing the road or crossing a sidewalk or no, that sort of thing? No, I'm, I'm pulling them off my tomato plants. <laughs> They're in my yard. They may. <laughs> a lot of them? Uh, no, only a couple here and there, but, I mean, I step on them every time I see them. <laughs> I think they may be toxic to birds. I'm not, you know, to pre- things that might eat them. Uh, but I wanna, I'm trying to bring up the scientific name for you, uh, and you could look it up. Uh, just a second here. But lover cricket, the, the lover grasshopper, though, I'm sure I can Google that. Yeah, if you... Uh, I was wondering if it was you, an invasive uh, species. I never saw them before about four or five years ago in my life. Uh, they are... They are a native species. Up this... in central. I live in central Mississippi, and... They're seen much less frequently than you would see them in South Mississippi. And folks up this way refer to them as graveyard crickets sometimes because they they see them in graveyards, but that's not the only place they occur. They tend to be seen in open areas where they're visible. I see them crossing the road and uh, and actually photographed them. Okay, I've never seen them crossing the road. They're always crossing my yard or or in my vegetable garden. All right, uh, John. Thanks for the call. Joe, so, I'm I'm just reading. Uh, I just read online that uh, that a shrike can eat them. That they decapitate yes. them and eat them. You know, a, a, a shrike is good at eating insects. So uh, that's one predator, and it it does say that they can be destructive in your garden when you get a lot of them. The scientific name I, I'm, I apologize for being so slow is 
R O. Oh boy. R O M A L E A. That's the genus. <clears throat> Mycroptera. M I C R O P T E R A. The eastern lubber grasshopper. L U B B E R. I may have misspelled it before. And um, I remember when we tried to collect them for the museum, they were more prevalent. We went. We always went south to get them. On the yes, I I collected some uh, in. Uh, uh, it was in Jackson County. It was uh, on Highway 57 north of, you know, the actual coast. Uh, near near Van Cleve is where I got him back, but that was, you know, years ago. Also, he was uh, calling uh, from Osaka, which is in the southern part of the state, so that would make sense why he might yeah. uh, be seeing them. Uh, That's in... right. All right, as uh, Joe so, McGee is our guest this morning. Joe, always good to have you on the uh, the program with us. Uh, what are you seeing and hearing uh, around your area this time of year and some of the creatures? Okay, uh, it's almost like what I'm not hearing. The uh, And it's an indication, you know, that, that the breeding season is winding down for the birds, and that is the dawn chorus is much subdued now. During the height of the breeding season for birds in late May or uh, June, when you first first wake up you know if you wake up about the time the sun arises it's, it's there's a beautiful dawn chorus dozens of birds singing maybe hundreds depending on where you live i'm not hearing much of that now a few are still singing the indigo buntings sing well into august and the wood thrushes are still singing but those large uh choruses are much they've really quieted down now because the uh birds are preoccupied with feeding the young, which have probably fledged. By, in most cases, they've fledged now. The young, that means the young have left the nest. The adults continue to feed them for, it depends on the species, say a month or so. And, uh, and then, they, then they all dis- disperse, and s- some of them migrate uh, out of here. Our uh, permanent residents, like the titmouse, the tufted titmouse that Libby was talking about, now they will sometimes sing any month of the year. But especially during the breeding season, uh, you can hear them singing. The Carolina wrens continue to sing. Cardinals, I have a lot of cardinals around my place. And even they are not singing very much now. So that's one indication that, you know, the breeding season is winding down. You know, Joe, I never realized that, but that's, I've, I've noticed that as well because, uh, you know, um, there's oftentimes a lot of uh, singing going on outside my window that seems to really attract my cat and also kind of wakes me up uh, in, in the morning time, uh, sometimes a little bit before the alarm goes off. Uh, but I've noticed that you're yes, right. I'm, yes. I'm not hearing that as much anymore this time of year. Yes. The Carolina Wren makes a really good alarm clock if you happen to have those living around your house. They sing right about the time the sun rises. So, of course, the sun is coming up a little bit later now every day. So the Carolina Wren would be waking you up a little bit later. But, uh, yeah, the, the, the breeding season is, is rapidly tapering off for the birds now. And it, folks who have, and I'm sure some of the listeners probably have a colony of purple martins, and they may have noticed that the martins have fledged, the purple martins have fledged, or are about to fledge. They fledge in my area around the 4th of July. Hmm. which seems awfully early, and the, the adults continue to feed them, of course, out of the nest. But remember, purple martins are probably the first neotropical migrant to arrive in the spring. They arrive in central Mississippi in February. It's still winter, actually. Uh, 
So it's not surprising that they would leave early. And it's really interesting what with the Purple Martins, they hang around the Martin house or the gourds for a while, and then they'll leave, uh, and you don't see them, and then they'll return, and they do this with ever-increasing infrequency until eventually you don't see them anymore. But if you're really observant, you may find large congregations of Purple Martins on power lines. There's a place in Meridian where they used to do this. I haven't checked it in the last few years, but there were some utility lines near the old mall in Meridian, the Village Fair Mall, where hundreds of Purple Martins would congregate before they migrate uh, down to the coast and then where they join up with other Purple Martins and eventually they migrate to Brazil. So, Joe, a, a lot of people are interested in, in hummingbirds. What can you tell us about the ruby-throated hummingbird migration? Okay, actually, it, it's going on right now, believe it or not. Folks have hummingbird feeders out, and they may have you know, dozens of hummingbirds coming to the feeder. And, it, and there's dozens there every day, and you, and you might think, well, gee, they're not migrating. They're here every day. I can hardly keep the feeders full. But, and I got what I'm about to say from... Uh, uh, a hummingbird bander a few years ago up at the Hummingbird Festival at Holly Springs. If you say you had a dozen ruby-throated hummingbirds coming to a feeder and a bander came and banded all of them on Monday, by Saturday or Sunday, you know, roughly a week later, most of your hummingbirds would not have bands. One or two might, but most of those banded birds would have moved on and been replaced by unbanded birds. And so migration is actually taking place now for the ruby-throated hummingbirds. They slowly make their way down uh, to the coast. So, Joe, tell us what a shorebird is. A shorebird. Shore, this, is, this is one of the most interesting areas, areas of uh, bird watching for birders, heavy-duty heavy birders, serious birders. Shorebirds are birds, as the name suggests, that hang around shores but not entirely. They are the sandpipers and the plovers, and there's one shorebird that I bet you everybody listening, probably everybody in Mississippi is familiar with, and that is the killdeer. It is actually a shorebird. It's a plover, uh, and they do hang around ponds, which you don't have a shore. Uh, they're not entirely uh, shorebirds. They, sometimes you see them in areas where there's not any water, but that's a good example of a shorebird, and they have probably finished nesting for the year. Most of our shorebirds that we see nest in the far north, and when I say far north, some of them nest in Alaska and Canada, hmm. some on the Great Plains, and they start their movement south in July. Already, birders are reporting seeing one called a least sandpiper. It's our uh, smallest sandpiper. And uh, others will be, I've seen solitary sandpipers, I haven't seen one this yet this year, but I have seen them as early as July 18th. So these birds uh, migrate uh, in what we may think of as midsummer, but for them it's already late summer, and these are some of our most long-distant migrants. Some of them end up in southern South America. Wow. Others may winter on our, our coast, on our Gulf Coast, but uh, uh, they are some of our most migratory birds. Uh, before our next break, one of the other birds that you want to mention is the calico heron, so tell us about that. <laughs> yes, calico heron. I uh, That's that's an antiquated term. It's not used much anymore. A calico heron is, if you have an old field guide, though, you may find it in there, a really old field guide. A calico heron is a little blue heron. 
little blue herons are real common in, in Mississippi this time of year. They're among the wading birds that you see around ponds and whatnot. When they first fledge back, you know, in June, the young are white. They're completely white. But the adults are a beautiful slate, slaty blue. Uh, most of their plumage is slaty blue on their neck and head. It's a little bit maroon colored. But there is a period in, in their second year when they're going into their second summer when they begin to molt into the adult plumage. And sometimes you will see one that is both blue and white modeled. It's, I've seen some that are really pretty. It's a little late for that this year. You're more likely to see that maybe in late June, but it's still possible. And I've been with people who would see that, and they wonder what on earth they have, you know, have seen. What could that bird possibly be? And it's really just a, a, two, uh, a two-year-old little blue hair and a one that will soon be two years old. All right, uh, let's take another break. Uh, when we come back, we'll switch our conversation and focus a little bit on frogs of Mississippi. Like the seasons, certain frogs and their sounds come and go. Joe will tell us what to listen for this time of year when we return, so stay tuned. We've got some open phone lines for questions and comments. The number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672 7464 You can email the show. Just send it to animals at mpbonline.org. Back with more after this. If you're a parent on the go but still want to stay informed about your children's education, subscribe to Mississippi Education Connections podcast and listen on the go anytime, anywhere on your favorite podcast app. You're listening to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, Libby Hartfield, and our guest today is biologist Joe McGee. So we're talking about some of the creatures that you might be seeing in and around Mississippi this time of year. Uh, before we get back in with Joe, Libby, uh, you wanted to talk about something that is on the front page of the Clarion Ledger this morning. The Above the Fold prominently displayed a big picture of what? Oh, the alligator snapping turtle. Yes. And uh, that's uh, Luke Pearson, and he's been on our show before from USM. He works with the Museum of Natural Science. He's at USM, but he, he works with the museum on some cooperative research about alligator snapping turtles. And he's holding a great big alligator snapper. And there is, um, I haven't read the the. The paper yet, and I apologize. I'll read it later, but I've I've heard now, and Java told me that he had seen it. But uh, we have a good podcast that I listened to not long ago when somebody was asking me questions about alligator snappers. So if you uh, look for uh, through our podcast and look for the alligator snapping turtle one with Luke Pearson, you'll get a, a lot more information about that bird about that animal. I'm calling everything a bird today. <laughs> that alligator snapping turtle would not be a bird. It's like what 128 pounds? Is that well, right, John? Well, no, it's a uh, very big one. Actually, the caption, I love the caption of the photo. It says, <clears throat> with the head the size of a basketball and legs larger than human calves, this 146.6-pound alligator snapping turtle is the largest captured by researcher Luke Pearson in four years of field work. So if you can, uh, you know, look at a copy of the Clarion Ledger, it's a great photo and really does give you an idea of what a massive turtle uh, this one that Luke found really is. And then if you go to our podcast, you can learn all about those animals. All right. We have an email here, uh, Dr. Major. It seems like uh, cats have been the popular topic for our emails this morning. Uh, but the emailer wonders about uh, whether uh, it is advisable or possibly even dangerous to give cats milk. 
you know, people have given cats milk forever. Uh, I don't recommend it. Uh, I don't think it's necessary. And some cats, just like people, are lactose intolerant and may cause some diarrhea. So it's not, you know, some of the foods may have milk or milk products in them, but uh, I would not recommend feeding milk. Uh, some people are doing it. If the cat's not having a problem, probably okay, but I don't think it's a good a good idea. Uh, any known effect to a cat's urinary tract for drinking milk? I, I would say that certainly it could be some possibilities. Uh, it could unbalance an already good diet. And what you're trying to do with the diet to help prevent urinary tract problems is to maintain a uh, pH that is conducive to uh, no bacterial growth, also prevents stones or crystals forming. And uh, I would say, again, that I would not be uh, an advocate of feeding uh, your cats raw milk or milk. All righty. Uh, we've got a caller on the line, so let's say good morning to Bobby in Petal. Bobby, you're on the air with us, so go ahead. Uh, well, I had one question, but he gave me a second one. Uh, when he was talking about hummingbirds already migrating, uh, I have, I'm in Forest County, and I have one pair of hummingbirds all summer long until the 1st of September. You can almost set your calendar by it. And the first week of September, I start getting in 20, 30, 40 more hummingbirds, and they stayed about the last day of September, and they've gone. But I've never seen any early migration like that at all. Um, and I was just wondering what, what that's all about. I didn't think they left until September. My other question is uh, goldfinch. I like to put up goldfinch feeders, but I don't know when to put them up. They seem like that they require fresh food, and that niger that you feed them is very expensive, and if you put it up too early and it goes bad, then you've wasted money. So I was just wondering when Forest County could expect the goldfinches to come in here in the fall. All right, uh, Bobby, thanks for the call. Joe, if you would start with uh, the hummingbirds. Okay, he was, uh, I think he was wondering why I said they were migrating now when he sees them. Uh, he's seeing a pair now, and then later he sees a whole bunch. But remember I said uh, if if those birds were banded, you might not see birds banded, you know, by the end of the week. Uh he is not necessarily seeing the same hummingbirds every day. Uh, they move out and are replaced by more coming from the north. Now, I'll admit this is this is only July 16th, and he may have a you know a few that are residents in his area right now, but they will soon be moving out, only to be replaced by more coming down from the northern part of the state, from Tennessee, from you know from points north. All right. So I'm a, I am assured by hummingbird banders that this is this is the case. Uh, the other thing Bobby had asked about was uh, the goldfinches in uh, South Mississippi. Yes. He's calling from Petal. Yes, uh, the American goldfinches. They usually show up in central and south Mississippi a few maybe as early as late November. December is a little more likely, and then especially after the Christmas holidays, after the uh, Christmas and New Year's holidays, they can show up in large numbers. It depends on the weather. And I am somewhat puzzled by the fact that the last few years I have not seen so many. They used to clean me out of seeds. I could barely keep the feeders full. Uh, I had so many, and it's been many fewer the last uh, three or four years. 
and I'm not you know, sure what's going on. As, as a matter of fact, right now I have thistle feeders that are full, but the, you know, they never ate the seed, and I brought them in, the feeders inside. I probably should have put them in a freezer uh, to make sure the seed don't go bad, but uh, I'm not sure what's happening. Now, American goldfinches breed in the northern part of the state. If you were to go up to Holly Springs to the uh, Hummingbird Festival, you can see breeding plumage males drinking from the uh, ant guards, you know, the water in the ant guards for, on the hummingbird feeders. Hmm. And they they may be breeding some of, very infrequently in the central part of the state. I heard one one yes. year in Lauderdale County in August and another one one year in Madison County in August. I didn't see them, but I heard, you know, they make a very distinctive uh, potato chip call, so... Uh, yeah. But you don't look for hummingbirds in Hattiesburg or the Hattiesburg area until at least late November, I would say. The, gold, mean, the goldfinches, you mean? The goldfinches, yeah. Oh. Okay, well, I'll, Joe. I'll put my feeders out then. Thank you. All right, Bobby, thanks for the call. Go ahead, Libby. Joe, I, I've got an, a neighbor that's just two miles from me that has and taking great pictures of them right now. She's got a pair of goldfinches, so they must be breeding there, and they're coming to her feeder. Yeah. And they're absolutely gorgeous. And that's the first ones I had seen. But I've heard people say that there were a few isolated incidences in, in central Mississippi where they're now nesting. You know, it's uh, as as our climate gets warmer, I think those birds may push further south to nest. I don't know. That's hard to say. No, yeah, really, it should go it, opposite, shouldn't it? They but seem anyway, to be, perhaps. Go ahead, Libby. Oh, anyway, that's I keep hearing that they're more and more, and now that they're some so close to my house, I'm going to be uh, watching and listening for them. Yes, uh, that it could be, and this is just me speculating. I, I haven't gotten this from from an authority, but it could be that they are expanding their breeding range. You know, the way the Phoebes have Eastern Phoebes mm-hmm. now nest on your porch, right, Libby, or on your yes. house. Yes, yeah. For the last two a few years, years ago, that would have been unheard of. Yeah. We've so seen them maybe the goldfinches are. Years. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there was a time when the only place you could see nesting Phoebes in Mississippi was in the northeastern part of the state. And now they're nesting. I don't know how far south they have nested, but uh, certainly as far south as the I 20 corridor, uh, you can find eastern Phoebes nesting. All right, uh, let's move on. We've got Rita calling in from Gulfport with a question for Dr. Major. Rita, go ahead, please. Yes, I have a 14-and-a-half-year-old King Shepherd dog, and her. I know she's old, but is there any drops or ointment that I could put in her eyes? They, they seem to just stay red. Okay. Uh, is there a lot of mucus or just, uh, just red eyes? Just the red eyes. Right. There might you know, be mucus, but I, I think she yeah. would be pushing it off. I understand. I would suggest, you know, a good lubricant. Uh, your vet can fix you up with that. In other words, something that would help keep the eye moist as uh, dogs get older. Certainly it could be a problem. But if the sclera, that's the white part of the eye, if the sclera is really red, I suggest yes. getting her in and having her looked at. I know it's difficult with an old dog a lot of times to you know, get them in, but I would suggest that there may be an underlying cause for that, and antibiotic may be uh, required. But one of the things that I I use a lot of is lubricant just to make sure that the eye is very 
lubricated and not drying out. So uh, my recommendation to you is to try to get her into your bed if you can. Okay. All right. Thank you. Yeah. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks, Rita. Good to hear from you this morning. We've got some open phone lines if you're listening and would like to join the conversation. It's one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. You can email the show. Just send it to animals at mpbonline.org. Uh, so, Joe, you're always our resident frog expert as well. And the last time we had you in, we talked about some of the frogs that were singing. We talked about the southern cricket frog, the green tree frog, and the squ- squirrel tree frog. Uh, are any of those still uh, singing, or are we hearing different types of frogs? They are. In fact, this morning uh, I heard a squirrel tree frog. I have them around my house, and I heard one singing uh, or calling uh, this morning. The green tree frogs are still calling, as well as the cricket frogs. L- yesterday, Late yesterday we had thunder showers, thunderstorms in east-central Mississippi, and I went out in the early evening last night, and I didn't hear any frogs calling, though. Could be they they were taking a night off. You know they have to do that from time to time, sort of build up their energy reserves. But uh, as the season moves on, they will like the birds. They will start calling more infrequently, or less frequently, perhaps I should say. Uh, if it stays wet, if we get a lot of rain, the cricket frogs, the southern cricket frogs, the green tree frogs, the uh, uh, squirrel tree frogs. And some of the other uh, gray tree frogs, they will continue to, to call. But if it should turn off hot and dry the way it did last year, you know, you may recall we had a flash drought last year, and the water holes begin to dry up and do dry up, it becomes too hot and dry for the frogs to breed, and they'll stop, stop singing. So it's very much weather-related. Lots of rain, keep the ditches and the um, water holes full of water, some species will continue to call until late August. Even, green tree frogs will even call in early September if it's wet. And they are continuing to call now. But I think the toads, uh, you know, the southern toads and the fowler's toads, uh, well, the southern toads I'm pretty sure are not calling now. There may be a few fowler's toads still calling. Uh, and the narrowmouth toads, which are, by the way, not a true toad, they uh, are still calling, and they'll call until late August. Are there any that weren't calling earlier in the summer that would start up this time of year? Uh, there is one that could. It's it's uh, it's hard to find it. There's one called a spadefoot, eastern spadefoot or eastern spadefoot toad, and they will call following torrential rains which we could get when, you know, tropical storms move through. And they will respond to these uh, unusual rain events. And so you might hear, it's possible that you could hear the eastern spadefoots calling. Another one that will, that's typically not thought of as a warm season frog is the southern leopard frog. And they will respond to these large rain events that accompany the passage of a tropical storm. Uh, but by and large, the frog season sort of stops uh, with autumn when when uh, when things dry up. In Oct- October, I don't expect to hear any frogs calling. Late September, October, early November, or throughout November, I really don't expect to hear frogs calling anywhere in Mississippi. 
So what about the humidity? Does that seem to bother the, I mean, you know, we talked about hot weather and sort of drying up their, um, their watering areas, but what about humidity? Does that seem to have any effect on the frogs? I think frogs respond favorably to high humidity. They, remember, they have a moist skin, or it's, it's somewhat moist, and uh, the higher the humidity, the less likely they are to dry out. Uh, they, when it's hot and dry, they seek shelter uh, sometimes underground, a little bit underground, or in leaf litter in relatively cool, damp places. They want to stay moist, so I think high humidity actually benefits frogs. And, and toads, for that matter, even though toads have a drier, slightly drier skin. Yeah, they, they seem to respond favorably to high humidity, Well, it's, it's unlike us humans. I was going to say, it's good to know that some creature out there appreciates the high yeah. humidity, because as you said, I think yeah. as humans, we pr- pretty much don't. Let's uh, take our last break yeah. for this hour. Uh, we will continue our discussion with biologist Joe McGee after this. Uh, we still have a little bit of time for you to work in a phone call, so stay tuned. Dr. Major here, ready for some pet questions. The number to call is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672 Email the show. Send it to animals at mpbonline.org. Back to wrap things up after this. Hey, this is Malcolm White with the Mississippi Arts Commission. I'm one of the hosts of the Mississippi Arts Hour, the arts interview show on Think Radio. Every week, myself or one of my fellow hosts bring you in-depth interviews with different creative Mississippians. We talk with visual artists, musicians, writers, as well as people who help bring the arts to their communities. We hear about how each artist learned their craft and get some insight into their creative process. You can hear the Arts Hour every Sunday at 5 p.m. on Think Radio or listen anytime by subscribing to the show through your favorite podcast app. You're listening to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. I'm Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, Libby Hartfield, and biologist Joe McGee. If you uh, ever miss today's, uh, any of today's show, or if you just want to listen back to it or any of our previous programs, why don't you subscribe to the podcast? You can use your favorite podcasting app or download the MPB Public Media app for your smartphone, and you'll get to listen to all the MPB Think Radio programs on your schedule. We've got a couple of calls to get to to wrap things up, so we will start again with Carolyn calling in from Clinton. Good morning. You're on the air with us. Hi, uh, yes, good morning. Yes, I'm calling. I have a question. I have a little dog. He's a Martise. He's about 10 years old now, but probably about a year ago, you know, during the summertime when I was walking him in the area where I live, um, it was like a, a frog den. And so kind of like at dusk dark, they would be everywhere. And he bit two frogs, like within 30 minutes apart. And the last frog, he kind of bit you know, it foam. He foamed at the mouth, and the vet said that was the frog urinated. And he did collapse briefly when he was foaming at the mouth, but he got up. But he developed just kind of like constantly swallowing and like the air. So I, you know, took him to the vet the next morning, and the vet said that the frogs are not toxic. But ever since those two incidents, he just constantly licks at the air and just does like a constant swallowing all day long, and it started with the incident with the frog. So what would that be? Dr. Major, any thoughts? Uh, we see it fairly often, uh, and most of the time, once that happens, the dog will leave or cat will leave the frog alone, frogs alone after that. 
it is uh, very bitter, I suppose. I've never uh, had the opportunity to <laughs> lick one. But uh, it is a defense mechanism, in my opinion, and uh, most of the time... Uh, well, is that urinate that he was foaming at the mouth, or is it some kind of something else they released? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know that he was the urine did that. Uh, a lot of times, there's a release of. I would say that it's fairly toxic if your dog had that type of reaction, and the fact that he still remembers it uh, somewhere along the line and uh, shows some strange signs based mm-hmm. on based on the fact that he, uh, he had that episode. Uh, usually, it's not any type of a fatal situation. I could see if he got enough of it. Uh, in his throat, and there may have been urine involved, enough of it in his throat that that could cause some irritation and, you know, cause some problems. But that should be short-lived. Well, I wanted them to do, I don't know what you would call it, it would be, you know, like a scope to look down there, but they just always said they didn't think it was necessary. But, you know, it kind of bothers me because I keep thinking maybe he has something that's going undiagnosed. But he doesn't seem to be any in any pain or anything, you know. Right. But he's just constantly say, licking right. at the air and swallowing, and he does it all day. Only time he stops when he's sleeping. <laughs> sleeping. Okay. So he doesn't mm-hmm. have to be close to a frog to do that. He's doing that pretty much constantly. Mm-hmm. Ever since that okay. incident. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, obviously there was some irritation, and some of it may be <clears throat> a neurological type thing. Uh, I would go back to your vet and talk to him again and see what they might suggest. I don't know that a scope would make any difference, but uh, temporarily you might try some medication and see if that would help, okay? Okay. All right. Thank you. I really appreciate it. All right, Carolyn, and uh, just like with a human doctor, you can always go to another vet and, and get a second opinion and see if you can't find out what's going on. We appreciate your call, though. Uh, we've got a couple minutes left, and one final call goes to Diane calling in from Memphis. Good morning, Diane. Good morning. Go Last ahead. Week, I wasn't able to get to you in time to help this person, but you had someone calling who was desperate to treat their cats for fleas and ticks and just found it so expensive. You, The tubes, the individual tubes that they sell you for treating the cats, for instance, with Frontline Plus, are priced by the tube. They're not priced by the amount that's in them. They're all the same price. So if you buy the largest tube and use a 1cc syringe, without the needle, of course, the, the two caps fit right together. You can withdraw the amount that you need for a cat, dose that cat, and go to the next one. Frontline Plus, for instance, takes 0.5 cc's for a cat. I'm sure if you want to use a different product, your veterinarian can give you a conversion chart. All right, uh, Diane, thank you. Good advice uh, for that. Uh, And as Dr. Major mentioned, uh, this is uh, heavy flea season, so some good advice uh, for, uh, for flea control. Joe, we've got about a minute left. Uh, some maybe a creature, a bird, a frog, or something that folks might be want to be on the lookout for here in the next week or so. Okay, they might listen for yellow-billed cuckoos. That uh, can be a late breeder. Uh, it's not a true songbird. They don't really sing. They make sort of a wooden clucking sound. They could go to uh, 
uh, all about birds. The Cornell uh, Laboratory of Ornithology is all about birds. And listen to the sound that the yellow-billed cuckoo makes. Old-timers called them rain crows. Uh, that's a late-season uh, late bird that they could listen for. All right, very good. Uh, just a reminder that uh, if you ever have something that you've seen, aha, Java found that one pretty quick. <laughs> that would be a, a very distinctive sound. Uh, <laughs> in fact, he kind of startled me when he played that. Uh, reminder that if you have something that you need identified when you're out and about, uh, send an email to animals at mpbonline.org, and if you can add a picture, uh, that would certainly be helpful. We always want to try to help you identify what you see when you're out and about in Mississippi. That's going to wrap us up for today. Creature Comforts is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting Think Radio. Funding provided in part by listeners like you. If you want to hear today's show or want to revisit a previous show, go to mpbonline.org slash creaturecomforts. Our show is produced by Java Chapman, and our call screener is Liz Gill. So for Dr. Troy Major, Libby Hartfield, and our guest Joe McGee, I'm Kevin Farrell, inviting you to stay tuned because up next it's AutoCorrect with the lady auto mechanic, Allison Walker. We'll be back next Thursday at 9 for another Creature Comforts, heard only on MPB Think Radio.